0: You are now listening to the March 2nd broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour we have the attributes of God, walking our talk, and grace upon grace. First, let's begin with the attributes of God. This program will examine how we can learn about who God is, his character, and his nature by discovering his attributes. everyone and welcome to another program in our Attributes of God series. I am Susan Holtgrew, your host. So far, we have looked at nine attributes God shares with us. We have studied love, compassion, gracious, righteous, holy, good, jealous, merciful, and patience. Today, we are going to be learning about the attribute of forgiveness. A lot can be said about forgiveness, the forgiveness of God, and our forgiveness of others. First, let's look in Nehemiah chapter 9. The captivity in Babylon had ended. Nehemiah and the Judean people finished building a wall around Jerusalem. Ezra read the law to the people, and Nehemiah Proclaimed that this day was holy to the Lord. The people confessed their sin through the Levites, and in verses 16 and 17 the Levites cried out But they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commandments. They refused to listen and did not remember your wondrous deeds which you had performed among them. So they became stubborn and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God of forgiveness, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness, and you did not forsake them. Here we see that the attribute of forgiveness is linked with God's other attributes, graciousness, compassion, and being slow to anger. God forgave the children of Israel's rebellious ways, and faithfully led them and provided for them. In the New Testament, John, the baptizer, preached forgiveness mentioned in Luke chapter 3, verse 3, in which he writes, and he came into all the district around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John was preparing the way for Jesus' ministry by telling the crowds they needed to repent of their sin for the kingdom of heaven was at hand. Jesus spoke of forgiveness many times throughout the Gospels. He mentions it in the Last Supper with his disciples as part of the New Covenant. He wove it into the model prayer that we should ask our Father to forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then Jesus adds to that in Matthew 6, verses 14 and 15. For if you forgive others of their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. Then in chapter 18, verses 21 and 22, Peter asks Jesus a question regarding forgiveness. Then Peter came and said to him, Lord, How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you, up to seven times, but up to seventy times seven. Then Jesus tells a parable of the king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves, ending the parable by saying, in verse 35, My heavenly Father will also do the same to you. If each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. There are some very thought-provoking verses here that we just studied, and it all boils down to this. God loves us so much that he forgives us when we sin against him and our neighbors. So because he has forgiven us, we in turn must forgive the people who have sinned against us, whether they are family members, co-workers, or strangers. We forgive because God forgives us. Forgiveness is such an amazing attribute of God. It is the only attribute that he withholds from us if we withhold from others. In closing, let us remember Paul's words from Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32, where he writes, Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. God bless you and goodbye. Coming up next is the podcast series, Walking Our Talk. We will be studying the book, Learning How to Trust Again, by Dr. Ed Delf and Alan and Polly Heller. Through true life stories and God's Word, you will learn how to regain your emotional, physical, and spiritual well-being, how to rebuild broken relationships, and you will learn five keys to regaining your trust. Now let's hear from Alan and Polly Heller and Dr. Ed Delph and begin our study on how we can learn how to trust God and others.
1: Welcome to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. I'm Dustin Daniels. Last week, we heard a great conversation on the relationship cycle. Ed gave us those steps within the cycle and then Alan and Polly, they fleshed it out. They walked through their 42 years of marriage advice on how that cycle works. And they also gave us great examples from their own life. On today's podcast, we're going to discuss trust within our own human nature. In other words, what makes someone trustworthy? How much time does it take to trust someone? And how does accountability work after trust has been broken? All this material that we're discussing today comes from a book titled Learning How to Trust. Alan and Polly Heller, along with Dr. Ed Delft, are authors of this book. And the podcast is simply an in-depth conversation so that you can apply these principles to your own life. Let's get started with today's podcast of Walking Our Talk. So we all know, guys, we all know what makes a person untrustworthy. We've all come across that, and, and we've all been untrustworthy ourselves. But let's talk about what makes somebody trustworthy. What are the characteristics? What are the attributes that God gives us in His Word to where we can be a trustworthy person as we go through learning how to trust in these different Um, cycles that we that we talk about the relationship cycle and we have to go through those things what does
2: it look like what does god say about a trustworthy person well it's interesting in the bible jesus didn't really trust his disciples until they had received the gift of the holy spirit trust isn't in our nature Uh, to be trustworthy really isn't in our nature if we have something like the flesh that just wants me, my best, me, Tarzan, you, Jane. You know what I'm saying? Or today's world, me, Jane, you, Tarzan, whatever it is. (laughs) But the idea is that you can only be trustworthy to the degree that the Word of God is working in your life by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I think in today's world, we um, we neglect the power of Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's that exchanged life. That's letting Him take over. We don't do this naturally; we do it supernaturally, mm-hmm. if mm-hmm. I can say it that That's way. Good. And yeah. so, it's it's uh, there's a greater source, and you know we aren't the source. Um, he's the source. The Holy Spirit's the source. God's the source. Jesus is the Trinity is the source. And so um, it's interesting to me that Jesus really didn't trust his disciples. And in fact, it even says that. He didn't trust in man because he knew what was in man there mm-hmm. in John. And so he trusted the Holy Spirit after they received his trustworthiness. It wasn't their trustworthiness, it was his trustworthiness. So... I would really encourage all of you out there, don't just be impressed with the looks or the words. Mm-hmm. Don't be, I mean, Eve was deceived by words, you know, Adam was deceived by looks. I mean, there's always going to be something. Here's what I would encourage you to do. Look to the Lord on this. Look for Christ working in someone. going um, Well, he's going
3: he's gonna to look like Christ's characteristics. I mean, there you I think go. if if a person is walking what they talk, doing what they say, saying what they do, I mean, Jesus was the most congruous person there is. He said what he did, and he did what he said to perfection. And um, one of the things, practically speaking, is we need to see a person uh, speaking truth and then living it with their family, with their business dealings with the way they live their life.
4: I was thinking about Mary, the mother of Jesus, at the wedding at Cana, and they ran out of wine at this big week-long probably (laughs) wedding celebration. (laughs) And she said to the servants, whatever he tells you, do it. Because she knew that Jesus had a way of coming up with the right answer. This was before he had done any miracles. This was the very first miracle that's recorded in the Bible that he did. And Mary knew that she could trust him to come up with a solution. Whatever he had done in their home growing up, he had established a track record with his mother of being absolutely trustworthy, and she was able to tell those servants uh, at that wedding party, whatever he tells you, do it.
2: Nice, Polly, and that that's that's a great point. And uh, it, here's the statement that kind of, to me, kind of summarizes that: making commitments generates hope; keeping commitments generates trust. And evidently, Jesus had kept enough of those commitments to where he was reliable. She could count on the integrity of Jesus. She could count on his character and she just made that statement based upon that trust that was in there over a long period I mean she'd, she'd had a period she'd gone through that whole relationship cycle you know they had, a, they had a little bit of an issue one time when he was busy in the father's house and remember they were halfway to wherever they were going and they had to come back they worked through that relationship cycle and they came all the way back to mature love you know started an attraction it's a baby you know and then but moved up to uh, that mature love and she made that statement based upon that great point right I think of the
3: book uh, the speed of trust I think uh, Covey wrote this book and he talked in uh, gave an illustration of these two uh, presidents of companies that were multi-billion dollar companies that could make a agreement on a handshake because they knew the integrity of the other person and so they shook hands and made this gigantic deal and then their lawyers and everybody else work through it. And that's the kind of trust we're talking about where I say I'll be there and I'm there over time. And it's not going to be perfect in this world. We see in a mirror darkly. One day we'll get it all right. But uh, right now we, we see most of the time this person, when they say something, they follow through with the actions to do it. And that's what helps us feel secure in this relationship where I can trust you, uh, there will be times where you'll have to work through that relationship cycle that we talked about because there will be conflict. There will be, I thought, expectations. Uh, You know, I think there are great expectations, Uh, sometimes expectations we can't meet, and we have to work through those. Um, And if we do it God's way, then we'll be able to forgive, let go, and say, okay, let's try again. But if more of the time than not, you're breaking that relationship. If more of the time than not, you are saying, I-, I promise I won't do that again. I won't interrupt. I won't. And you keep doing the same thing. That person will no longer trust you. They're just going, he's, he's saying it, but he's not doing it. And I just can't. that's
4: right it's that old adage actions speak louder than words it doesn't matter what your intention is or what you say your intention is it's what you actually do that speaks to the other person and lets them know whether or not they can trust you
1: Mm -hmm. it's amazing how trust is is built over time and obviously, the longer the time, the, the more trust that we we have with with people. I'm thinking of a, a dear brother of mine that I just, I love this guy to death. I just love him. He's He's got a great spirit. He's got a great heart. He loves the Lord. But he just has a, a very big flaw in that he doesn't keep his commitments. Mm. And Alan, it's just like, dude, I love you so much. And yet I can't we can't do this together because you're you're going to be late, you know, and he's got so many wonderful things going for him. And at the end of the day, he can't be trusted in that area. And that really breaks my heart because mm-hmm. you know, we've all got something, but this is something pretty big, especially when you're working with somebody or somebody right. inside the church, right? Whether it's a volunteer position or, or whatever at the end of the day, just like you said, Polly, we've got to do what we say we're going to do. And how do you have that conversation, Alan? Yeah, that's a difficult one. And
3: uh, there, I think what scripture says is, because this is a, a case where somebody, first it's just an irritant. Then it's, <laughs> yes, you yes. know, just, <laughs> it, it becomes so frustrating to the point that I can't, there's physical separation because I can't be in the same place at the same time because you're not keeping your commitment. And so that's where either I have a heart-to-heart talk, which unfortunately there aren't that many people that are willing to do that. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is really the test. There is a friend that sticks closer than a brother. And The friend that sticks closer than a brother is the one that will come to you and say, hey, I love you, but I just got to tell you, this is causing me not to even want to work with you. And that's one of the hardest conversations you can have in a relationship because in a sense you're saying, I'm all in, but I can't be all in if you're not all in. And so it's a reciprocal relationship. It's a two-way thing. Yeah, it's a, a relationship, a good one, a healthy one is one where both people make a commitment, and most of the time, we do what we say and would we'll say what we do. Um, a good friend of ours, Al-El's, uh counselor consultant friend says, you know, there are one-way relationships where I'm working, and I'm trying to do more than I can possibly do, and it's not coming back. And I get frustrated with the fact that this is a one-way relationship. Mm-hmm. For some of us, it says be at peace with all men as far as it's possible mm-hmm. for you. For some of us, it's not, a, not possible to be at peace. But if the relationship is worth it, I mean, from a human standpoint, I'll make that commitment. I will go to my brother or sister and say, hey, I love you, but this is getting in the way of us actually working together and even of me wanting to hang out with you. And sometimes that will help the person come back and they'll go, well, what can I do? Well, can I talk to you about it? When you do this, can I call you on it? And you know, depending on if they give you the freedom to be willing to talk to them, That's the beginning. It's not the end because the the proof's in the pudding. The proof is three months from now, are you still not showing up when you say you're supposed to show up, you know?
4: Well, I think that's where the word accountability comes in. Mm -hmm. And I know that you're pretty big on accountability partners. And if you know that you have a problem with something and you want to grow beyond that area, then you need to get an accountability partner. If you're really serious about being on time, you need to have somebody who's going to hold you accountable for being on time. If you really want to break a habit, stop smoking, stop drinking, stop gambling. That's what all these AA groups and all of that are about. You get an accountability partner, somebody who's going to say, how are you doing with that?
2: And, and I think it's the responsibility of that accountability partner. I think a lot of people have accountability partners, Molly, mm-hmm. but the accountability partners are afraid to ad- ever address anything, <laughs> and, you know, and because that might hurt you. Like when, an oxymoron you know, to me, that's I, not an accountability yeah. partner. <laughs> it's, it's accountability in certain areas, you know. Let's think about it. I, we may have alluded to this in times past here, but, you know, if you think about it, we have three emotions. We can love, we have fear, and we have anger. Fear is moving away. That's when the person, even though they know you have that, this thing is driving me crazy, mm. I'm not going to take a chance, that's moving away. Mm-hmm. Anger is moving against. Many times people just get mad and move against and boom, you know, and the relationship's over and explodes. But what we want to do is have an accountability partner that's filled with love. Mm. He's for you, she's for you, not against you. And that person say, says when they come to you, and when they, let's say if you're the one who keeps making the mistake, you know, being untrustworthy, they come to you and say, you know, when you do that, this is what I think about mm-hmm. that. This is the way I feel when you do this. So I think, I feel, and I would like. This is what I would like. In other words, even give them the behavior that you'd like to see. And then that, see, I love that love approach because it's not, it, it is two-way, it becomes more two-way rather than one-way. Anger's one way, fear's one way. <clears throat> Love is two way. Mm. And so you say, I feel, I think, and I would like, and you get it out on the table, and then you can watch their behavior from there. But I think many times, too, people just aren't aware. You know, Mm. it's such a habit in their life. Uh, They've been doing this for so long. They did it as a coping mechanism a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. (laughs) And uh, they've done it their whole life. And finally, somebody's just interrupted their world in a great way to help uplift them, not to bring them down, but to uplift them. And so it's so important the way we approach that. And you are so right that it is the acceptance
3: and love that who are the coaches, who are the people in your life? that have really propelled you to the next level. It's those who have accepted and loved you through the pain, through the not doing it right, and yet they accept and love you enough to keep helping you grow and do the right thing. So I think we've, we've uh, covered how, how can you build that trust, especially when it's been broken. You build that trust by first being honest, and love is giving somebody what they need, not just what they want. And you find that out though, the, the capital of relationship is that love connection in a good way, meaning uh, that I'm, I'm for you. I, I'm not against you. Even though I don't like the behavior, I'm for you. I'm a big fan of that's yours. Right. And that's the kind of thing that we need to do
2: to, to build that trust. God says in Romans there, he says, you know, and this is really interesting. He, he, he was like in the end of Romans 8, he was getting ready to getting these people, his church, ready for what was going to happen to them. Some of them, it was not going to be pretty. There was going to be tribulation. They were going to be distress. But before he says all that, he says this, but this one thing I want you to know, I am for you, hmm. not against you. It may seem when some of this stuff starts happening that I'm against you. But don't interpret it that way. Nothing shall separate you mm-hmm. from the trial and so forth. But he gets them ready for what may be what's, what's getting ready for him, okay? So there's going to be that. There will be distress in life. There will be testings. There will be those types of things. But that's okay. He loves you, period. I remember one time in Northwest Community Church when I was a singles pastor there, I, our singles department got so big we took on another pastor, And uh, I went out and had a walk with them, and, and I just took them kind of in my arms. And I said, Listen, we're getting ready to work together. And I just want you to know this it's going to be inevitable that stumbling blocks will come. But I just want you to know when you get that exposure, when you see something you don't like, I want you to know this I am for you, I'm not against you. It's not personal. We may disagree on the methodology. We may disagree on the strategy. We may disagree on those things. But please understand this, I am for you. And Mm. that's so powerful in a marriage, too. Uh, Becky and I have that. We're we're completely different in our I'm gray and she's black and white. Mm -hmm. But the one thing we know and what's kept us together for going on 36 years now is we both know that we're for each other. When Becky says something to me that's tough, i don't take it personally i know it's for my benefit because we've she's trustworthy she's reliable it's not an attack she, all she's trying to do is elevate me mm. it's for my benefit not hers
4: i think about the scripture that says let your yes be yes and your no be no and revelation where where the spirit of god is speaking to the churches and he says i wish that you were hot or cold, but you're lukewarm. And so I, you know, it makes me want to just spit you out of my mouth. And so many of the younger people today say, well, we, I just want to keep my options open. And so they don't want to commit. They want to give you a lot of maybes. Well, you try to invite them to something. Well, maybe I'll show up. I might do it. I'll 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 put I'll pencil it in. You know I'll I'll put it on my calendar as tentative. And so they're keeping all their options open, and and that to them feels like a a positive quality. But scripturally, God wants us to say yes or no. Make a commitment one way or the other, and that's that's what. We need, as people, we need to know, can I expect you to be there? Can I rely on you? Can I trust you? Can I lean on you? If, if everybody is a maybe, then you don't have any, anyone that you can depend on. Yeah,
1: absolutely. It's one of those things to where we need to say yes to the things, or more importantly, guys, the people that are most important to us. Mm -hmm. You know, when we try to establish what makes somebody trustworthy, it's about sacrifice and and me pouring my life into somebody else and and vice versa. Ed, do you have any last thoughts?
2: Yes. The way I'd say it is we're all flossum. Hmm. Okay, uh, not awesome. We're well. We're uh, what's a person who's flossom? A person who has f- aware of their flaws yet knows that they're awesome also. Okay, so I want you to know out there and as uh, those listeners, you are flossom. Okay, but it means that we all have these little areas, and sometimes people are very. Did we talked about this before. Very trustworthy in certain areas of their lives, but they have that one area. Hmm. You know, they don't know how to stay married to one person. You know, uh, they have, and yet they're trustworthy in so many other areas. They know how to make a good living. They know how to do marvelous things. But they have that one area, and that one area can kill us and, mm. and, and hurt us. And it's hurting, it's not just hurting them, it's hurting you. That's the problem, really. You're underachieving. Born to win, conditioned to lose. So I would encourage you all will just end up with this little joke here. Uh, this is Hager the Horrible, okay? This is the son. He says, Dad is it a good idea to trust people? And Hager says, sure, son, people are basically good, and you should always give them the benefit of the doubt. Then Hager says to his son, but don't turn your back on them. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but we want you to turn your back on them. Keep aiming, keep facing each other, and work through these things rather than just letting them turn into something that impedes what God wants you to
1: Thank you for listening to Walking Our Talk with Alan Heller. You can visit Dr. Ed Delph at nationstrategy.com. And for Alan and Polly Heller, head over to walkandtalk.org. On the website, you'll be able to order the Learning How to Trust book along with the newly revised application guide. You can also schedule a personal coaching session a one-on-one counseling session, and register for one of Alan's upcoming webinars. On behalf of Alan, Polly, and Ed, thanks for listening to Walking Our Talk. We'll meet again next week.
5: To Thy great faithfulness, mercy and love Great is Thy faithfulness, great is Thy faithfulness for tomorrow blessings all mine with 10,000 beside great is thy faithfulness great is thy faithfulness more Great is Thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me Great is Thy faithfulness, O God, my Father
3: You can find all the programs of Heart and Soul on podcasts and apps. You can easily play this week's or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your device in just a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul at your iTunes stores now.
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Bill Malter of Arizona Community Church. Today's topic is Ordinary Heroes, Part 2. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor Bill.
6: Last week, we talked about ordinary heroes, and we're going to be in one chapter of the Bible primarily, and that is Hebrews chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn there now or you can get it on your phone, wherever you get it. Now last week we talked about the fact that most people, most Christians have resigned themselves to living ordinary lives, by worldly standards that is. None of us will probably thwart a bank robbery. None of us, you know, successfully land a 747 after the pilots have passed out and we land the plane safely and save, you know, 500 people. We'll probably never do stuff like that in this lifetime. And so your name might never make it in paper, the local newspaper, you might never find yourself on the nightly news being lauded as a hero in some form or another. And so we kind of just think, well, there I am, here I am, I'm going to live, I'm going to die, nobody will really know who I am, and, you know, that's going to be my life. But the fact is, as we talked about last week, it doesn't have to be that way for those of us that are Christians. Why? Because the Bible is full of amazing examples of ordinary people that acted with heroic faith. Ordinary people that acted with heroic faith. We talked about the centurion that came to Jesus and said, just speak the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus was amazed. What amazed Jesus? What did Jesus marvel at? It was always a display of faith. He goes, I tell you that I have not seen such great faith in all of Israel. That's why it's one of my favorite passages in all the scripture. Jesus marveled. Again, you might not get the chance in this lifetime to do anything by worldly standards that is considered heroic. But that doesn't mean that you can't do what is heroic in God's eyes and please Him with the life that you live. Well, one of the defining characteristics of Christians is that we no longer live for ourselves, do we? At least we're not supposed to. That old man, that old woman kind of rears their head at times and we find ourselves being selfish. But one of the defining characteristics of Christians, at least it should be, is that we no longer live for ourselves, rather we live to please our king and to serve our king. Amen? Amen. Right, that's what we should be known as, people who serve the king. We make it our aim to please him with our lives. Not please ourselves, but to please him. Second Corinthians 5.8, Paul says this, yes, we are of good courage and would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So he's having that struggle that every Christian has. It's like, yeah, I love being alive. I'm living for Christ. I'm making a difference for his kingdom. But boy, do I want to go home. Amen. And so he goes, we'd rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, say it with me. We make it our aim to please him. This is the aim of the Christian life, to please God. This is the goal of the Christian life. It couldn't be any more simply stated. This was most certainly the desire of Jesus. It was his desire to please his father in heaven. John 8 29 says, And he who sent me is with me, and he has not left me alone. For I always do the things that are, say it with me, pleasing to him, pleasing God. This is our aim in this generation, just as it was the aim of Jesus and his generation and all the great people that came before him and after him. But I will tell you right now, living to please the Lord takes courage, does it not? It takes courage, especially when you are living in a world where people are not necessarily living to please the Lord. It takes courage to make decisions that please God. Let's face it, many people are living for themselves and for their own happiness. The Apostle Paul said this 2,000 years ago, but understand this, in the last days there will come times of difficulty. And the very first words out of his mouth after he says there's going to be times of difficulty are this, for people will be lovers of self. Do you wanna know where difficulty comes from, it comes from when we decide to live for ourselves. People will be lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. It is all about them, it is all about me. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. They don't seek to please God, they seek to please themselves. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, it says, avoid such people. That's how dangerous that mentality can be. A mentality that says, I'm going to live to please myself and not please God. It is dangerous. That we are a people and living in a generation that is becoming increasingly narcissistic can be seen in the fact that we are now the selfie generation. Are we not? Come on, let's all admit it. We've all taken selfies, right? I love photobombing. Anybody like photobombing? It's a great way to ruin somebody's selfie. Yeah, we are the selfie generation, and there's nothing wrong with taking selfies, but there comes a danger when it becomes all about self. It becomes all about me. But that's not the case for those of us who are believers. For those of us who are believers, that old self-centered person is now dead, and we now live to please the one who created us. Paul said this in Colossians chapter one, walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, say it with me, fully pleasing to him, not just partially pleasing to him, fully pleasing to him. As David said in the Psalms, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing unto you, O Lord. In other words, let me live a life that is pleasing to you through and through. Bearing fruit in every good work. Again, living to please the Lord takes courage. Again, especially when you're living in a world where pleasing the Lord isn't necessarily priority. But you know what else it takes to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord? It takes faith. It takes faith. And this morning we are going to be looking at two individuals who by faith live lives that were pleasing to the Lord even as they lived in generations that were not. Ordinary men who displayed heroic faith. So it is on that note, I turn our attention today, church, to the word of God, and I present to you the word of God. It's my privilege. I actually want to start with last week's passage so that we can kind of just follow it through as we go through Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter one, beginning in verse one. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. If you missed last week, I pointed out that you are going to be accused by the world of being naive people who are living by blind faith. Yet the biblical definition of faith has nothing to do with blind faith. It has everything to do with assurance and conviction. We are people that live with assurance and conviction. It is the atheist that lives by blind faith. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old receive their commendation. So what did the people of old believe? What did they have faith and assurance in? Well, it's fascinating what verse 3 says. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. You want to know what the people of old believe? They believe God created the earth. They had assurance and conviction about this. It wasn't a blind faith. They had assurance and conviction that God created the world. By the way, if you didn't see on here, I'm going to do a little study on Wednesday nights, one of the small groups that's starting on creation. Do we take creation literally? When the Bible says that God created the earth in six literal days, do we believe it? By, I say by faith we do. We take the word of God and we trust it. I mentioned last week that the earth had to have had a beginning. There could not be an infinite amount of time before this moment because if there were an infinite amount of time before this moment, this moment would never exist. So there had to be a beginning. Even atheists believe this. Even scientists believe this and philosophers believe this. We just believe that God created it. They believe that the universe popped into existence by nothing, for nothing. You tell me who's living by blind faith, not us. We live with assurance and conviction. And that brings us to today's passage. Hebrews chapter 11, beginning in verse four. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having, say it with me, pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to say it with me, please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. So church, I present to you the word of God this morning. So the very first expression of faith mentioned in Hebrews 11 is the expression of faith that God created the universe. The very first person named in Hebrews chapter 11 is Abel. The very first person by name is Abel. Abel was the fourth human being ever created that lived on this planet. Again, why did God put the genealogies in the Old Testament, these long, boring genealogies? I think so that we could, God said, I created the earth. I did it in six literal days. And in case you doubt that, I will trace the lineage from Adam to David, to Abraham, to Jesus. I will tell you the people's names and I will even tell you how long they lived. By faith, the people of old believed God created the earth in six literal days. And that's why I'm a young earth creationist. Again, we're a non-denominational community church and people believe otherwise. Good people believe otherwise. That's why I take that position. Abel, Abel, the first one mentioned. We read about him in Genesis chapter four. Now, Adam knew his wife or knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel, the fourth man to ever grace the face of the earth. Now, Abel was a keeper of the sheep And Cain was a worker of the ground. Cain and Abel, the first ever siblings. Now I'm curious, how many of you in here have siblings or have had siblings? Yes. How many of you are the younger sibling? That's me. Look, the younger sibling, we've been so abused by our older siblings, we don't even want to raise our hands high. We're just like, (laughs) that's me. How many of you are the older sibling? Yes, yes, we know you well. You tortured us. You made us do things we didn't wanna do. I have a picture hanging in my office of me in a dress when I was three years old because my sisters dressed me up and put me in it. Yeah, it's it's the older siblings that are laughing right now. The younger siblings can relate to me, right? And of course, I didn't even mention middle siblings. Who are the middle siblings? We don't care. Go ahead and put your heads down. Cain and Abel, the first ever siblings. Now, what do siblings do? What happens when there are siblings? All sorts of stuff. There's rivalries, there's all sorts of stuff that it happens. Things get dicey with siblings. Now, the scripture says that in the course of time each of these brothers brought an offering to the Lord. We read about this in Genesis. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of fruit from the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard Uh uh-oh, this could pose a problem. Here's where things get dicey. The scripture says that God has regard for Abel's offering and not for Cain's. Now, the scripture does not tell us what exactly it was about Abel's offering that was so pleasing to the Lord. Theologians have debated this down through church history. Was it because he brought an animal and Cain brought fruit from the ground or grain from the ground? Well, it could be. But as we see in the rest of the scripture, there are grain offerings that are acceptable to God. So maybe it was something else. I don't know. Theologians debate this. Here's the important thing. What we know for sure is that by faith, Abel brought a better sacrifice than his brother. In other words, by faith, Abel did what was pleasing to the Lord, while his brother Cain did not. Folks, you want to know what heroic faith looks like? It is doing what is pleasing to the Lord, even when the members of your own family are doing otherwise. That is what heroic faith looks like. Cain was the older of the two brothers. And usually little brothers look up to big brothers. And usually little brothers do what big brothers do. But in this case, Abel, who is the little brother, in faith, offers a more acceptable sacrifice than his older brother. Now, many of you in here can relate to this because you, like Abel, have lived or are currently living in a family where you are seeking to live out your faith in a a family that's not. Folks, that is the definition of heroic faith. And if that is you here today, the message is keep fighting the good fight. I know many of you in here are living out your faith in the midst of a family that is not. You have siblings, even parents, aunts, uncles, even children that deny the faith that you live by. That is the definition of heroic faith. It is living out your faith even when those around you are not. Over the years, I have met many Christians, especially Christian women who were married to unbelievers. I've met many women who got married to men who claimed to be Christians. After they get married, the man drops off going to church, doesn't want to read his Bible, doesn't want anything to do with God. You want to know what heroic faith looks like, folks? It's making decisions to please the Lord even when your own spouse is doing otherwise. That's heroic faith. I have met Christian teenagers who live with unbelieving parents, young teenagers, Living out their faith. Again, you want to know what heroic faith looks like? It's making decisions to please the Lord, even when your own parents are standing in the way. Abel was an ordinary man who did what was heroic. Even though his big brother would not, he brought an offering that was more acceptable to God. That's heroic faith. The Apostle Paul, of course, could relate to this. So could all the prophets and the godly men down through world history The apostle Paul had to daily make decisions. Am I going to please him, please God, or am I going to please man? I mean, let's face it. That is a daily decision we all have to make. Am I going to live to please the Lord today or please the people around me? Paul says this in 1 Thessalonians, but just as we have been entrusted or we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to say with me, Please God who tests our hearts. And it's in this one verse that Paul brings up a very important point. And I suppose if you get nothing out of my message today, get this, but what I'm about to say, you guys already know. It is very simple. If your aim is to please men, you will never please God. If it is your aim in this lifetime to please those around you, whether they be siblings, parents, children, coworkers, bosses, if you seek to please men, you will never please God, especially if the gospel is at stake. Again, go back to this verse. And just as we have been approved to be entrusted with the gospel, Paul's been entrusted with the gospel, and now he has a decision to make. Do I proclaim the gospel faithfully? And if I do, I will please God. But if I capitulate to what men want and please them, I will not be pleasing God. If your aim is to please men, you will never please God, especially when the gospel is at stake. You see, if Paul wanted to please men, all he had to do was compromise the gospel. All he had to do was water down the gospel in some way. Tell people what they wanted to hear instead of what they needed to hear. And folks, I'm telling you right now, you and I have been entrusted with the gospel in this generation. And we must daily ask ourselves, am I going to live to please God or please men? Because I've been entrusted with this treasure. And let me tell you, there's a million different ways in which you can compromise the gospel. We can become legalistic with it. We can abuse God's grace with it. I mean, there's a million different things we can do. We can water it down. Listen, I tell you, Paul knew that if he compromised the gospel, he would no longer be living to please the Lord. By faith, Paul proclaimed the gospel boldly, no matter what the cost to him personally. Guess what? Our generation, just like Paul's generation, is clamoring for those of us who are Christians to compromise the gospel. That's what the world wants. You Christians are wound too tight Why does Jesus have to be the only way? Can't you concede a little bit on that front? Why do we have to live holy lives under the Lord? Why do you insist that we repent and turn from our sin and turn to Jesus and him alone? Can't you guys relax? Folks, there are now mainline Protestant denominations that no longer proclaim Christ is the only way to be saved. Mainline Protestant denominations, which you and I grew up in, that were once faithful to the core, have now compromised on this very issue. There are now mainline Protestant denominations, which are assuring people that are living in outright sinful rebellion to the Lord that they are actually children of God and inheritors of eternal life. Sadly, the 21st century evangelical church so desperately wants to be accepted by the world that it seemingly is open to compromising at every turn in order to make this happen. I'm gonna tell you right now, folks, it takes faith to do what is pleasing in the eyes of the Lord, especially when everyone around you is doing otherwise, whether that be in your home or the church you attend. You attend a church like this, Lord willing, because we are faithful to the gospel. But I'm gonna tell you right now, you may catch grief out there for being in a church like this. It takes faith to do what is pleasing in the eyes of the Lord, even when no one else around you is. Abel was an ordinary man who acted with heroic faith, but now it's our turn. You and I, we can literally step out from the ordinary and do what is extraordinary by simply stepping out in faith and doing what is pleasing to the Lord, no matter what the cost to us personally. Each and every one of you right in here today, there's probably not a person in this room that will be given a chance this week to do anything heroic by worldly standards but I guarantee you, you will be given hundreds of opportunities this week to do what is pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. And though your name may never end up in the newspaper or on the local news, what should burden you, your name is echoing in the halls of heaven and before the throne of God himself as somebody that is living with heroic faith in this generation, even when everybody else is not. Amen? Amen. Now this brings us to the second person, Enoch. Like Abel, Enoch was a man who by faith did what was pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. I mean, that's what the passage literally says. By faith, Enoch taken up so that he should not see death. And he was not found because he was taken because God had taken him. Isn't that the dream of everybody? Just you're walking and then you're not. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that He rewards those who seek him. What is interesting about Enoch is that we don't know that much about him, but the little that is said about him paints a portrait of him as a very godly, heroic man. We first read about him in Genesis chapter five. Again, here's one of these long genealogies with specific names and specific ages. Again, by faith, we believe that God created the heavens and the earth. And by faith, I think that there's a reason those genealogies are in the Old Testament, that their names are given and their ages are given. And that we can trace those names from Adam to Abraham, to David, to Jesus. And from Jesus, I can get you right here today, down through world history. By faith, we trust what the Bible says, even when the world around us tells us otherwise. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, there it is again, walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now I want you to notice that phrase, walked with God. It says it a couple times in this passage, okay? Enoch was a man who walked with God. This term "walked with God" means that he was the type of man that lived a life that was pleasing to the Lord, because he walked daily with God, obeying His commands, listening to the voice of the Lord. Enoch lived a pleasing life precisely because he was a man that walked with God. Enoch reminds me of Psalm 1: Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seats of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law, he meditates day and night. I love this psalm. You know what the very next verse says, by the way? He will be like a tree planted beside waters, firmly planted beside waters. And the reason I know that is because I used to sing this verse, this passage, in InterVarsity Christian Fellowship at Sacramento State University. We would gather on Fridays, worship the Lord, and we'd sing this song. I will delight in the law of the Lord. I will meditate day and night. Then like a tree firmly planted, I will prosper in my time. Amen? That's the word of God. This is Enoch. He was a man who walked with God, who did not stand or walk in the counsel of the wicked. This phrase, by the way, walks with God, is also used of other godly men. Let me give you an example. These are the generations of Noah. Again, why are the generations of Noah listed in Genesis? because God is telling us something. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. Now here's what's interesting. Noah and Enoch lived right in the same window of world history. As a matter of fact, Enoch lived about 60 years before Noah. So they lived very, very close together in world history. Why is that important? Here's why, because Enoch and Noah were godly men who were living at a time in world history when mankind was increasingly growing corrupt. Genesis 6, now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And it gets so bad that God plans to wipe out the earth with a flood and he does this during Noah's lifetime. But again, here's the point. In the midst of this growing wickedness, here comes a man by the name of Enoch, a godly, heroic man of faith who is described as living a life that is pleasing to the Lord. You want to know what heroic faith looks like? It's living to please the Lord in a generation that is growing increasingly wicked, increasingly violent. That passage right there could describe this generation. Could it not? You want to know what heroic, godly faith looks like? It looks like you and me living to please the Lord in an increasingly wicked and violent generation. It's incredible. There's violence. There's blood being spilt on the streets of the United States. We think about violence and streets on the streets. We think of other countries. It's being spilled now on our very streets in this country. It is going to take heroic faith to live to please the Lord in this generation, for sure. Again, it gets so bad that God's going to wipe it out with a flood. But here in the midst of this is Enoch and, of course, Noah. Enoch's life is so pleasing to God, by the way, that God literally takes him to heaven. You heard me right. That's what it says. By faith, Enoch was taken so that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Now, this isn't the only time God has snatched a godly man away, a godly man who's living a pleasing life unto the Lord. You remember 2 Kings? Elijah experiences something very similar. And as they, that is Elijah and Elisha, as they went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Now, in case you're sitting here and going, this sounds like the stuff of fantasies, no one understand this, it's not. This will not be unlike what will happen to those that are living in the final generation before the Lord returns. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of a command, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet sound of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Folks, Enoch will not be the only person. Elijah will not be the only person snatched up by the Lord. Those of us who are alive at the coming of the Lord, who are living lives to please him, even in the midst of a generation of people who are not, will experience something very similar to these men. We will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. You want to know what that verse inspires me to do? That verse right there inspires me to want to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord, knowing that he could appear at any moment. Amen? Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Sing Maranatha till he comes. Maranatha, sing, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. Sing Maranatha till he comes. We sing that song. Maranatha means come, Lord Jesus, come. Listen, Abel by faith lived a life that is pleasing to God in his generation. Enoch also by faith lived a life that was pleasing to God in his generation. But folks, now it is our turn He has set your feet in this generation for such a time as this. The question is, who are you going to live to please in this lifetime? That's it. It It's one of the most important questions you will ever ask of yourselves in this lifetime. Who will you live to please in this lifetime? Folks, we are living in a country, morally speaking, where the wheels are coming off. Everyone is seemingly doing what is right in his or her own eyes. Very few people seem to be concerned with living lives that are pleasing to the Lord. Very few churches seem to be concerned with encouraging their flock to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord. It is going to take heroic faith on our part if we are going to live lives that are pleasing to the Lord in the midst of this generation in which we live. Amen? It is an increasingly violent and wicked generation, not unlike Noah's. And we should not be surprised because Paul said in the last times, this is going to be the very sign of the Lord's return. Now you say, well, Bill, are you saying the Lord's going to come today? I don't know. I hope so. Come, Lord Jesus. But even if you don't, I'm going to live today to please you, no matter what the cost to me personally. Amen? Amen. And I will do that every day until you either come back or call me home. But it is my aim and my goal to please you in this generation. And I'm going to tell you, it takes faith to do that. It's getting bad in this country. How many of you know who Greg Laurie is? Yeah, Greg Laurie is an evangelist in Southern California. He's putting on, puts on a yearly evangelistic crusade. I don't know if you heard this. He's receiving death threats because he put up posters with him holding a Bible. He's receiving death threats. You want to know what heroic faith looks like? It's doing what is pleasing to the Lord in the midst of a generation of people who are not. And it's not just in this country, of course. We have it bad in this country in some ways, but not nearly as bad as other countries. I just read this in the Miami Herald this week. I don't know if you guys saw this. It was in the news. I traced it back to the Miami Herald. It was talking about religious persecution in China. And it says this, this is right out of the Miami Herald. Experts and activists say that as he consolidates his power, President Xi is waging the most severe systematic suppression of Christianity in the country since religious freedom was written into the Chinese constitution in 1982. Christians right now are being persecuted. Churches are being destroyed. Uh, Believers are being intimidated constantly to leave their faith, to leave their churches. It said in there, there's an actual quote from one of the pastors. A lot of our flock are terrified by the pressures that the government is putting on them, he said. It is painful to think that in our own country's capital, we must pay so dearly just to practice our faith. They are losing their property and other privileges because of their faith. You want to know what heroic faith looks like? It's living to please the Lord even when your own government is confiscating your property. That's what heroic faith looks like. So what about you? What about me? Are we ready to exercise our faiths, our faith in this generation? Please the Lord, no matter what the cost to us personally. Folks, you do not need to be rich, famous, or powerful to have heroic faith. You may never be given an opportunity in this life to do anything heroic by worldly standards, but your name can echo in the halls of heaven and before the throne of God as somebody who lived with heroic faith today in a wicked and violent generation. Amen? It might be scary, it might be costly, but it will always be worth it if it means pleasing to God. So I give you this question, in what ways can you, by faith, live a life that is pleasing to the Lord this week? You're going to be given hundreds of opportunities to do this. Again, you may not be even given one opportunity by worldly standards to do anything heroic, but I guarantee you, even before today's end, you'll probably be given a dozen opportunities to do that which is pleasing in the eyes of the Lord. Will you by faith step out and do it even if your family is against you? Even if those at your work are against you? Even if your own government is against you? You live to please Him. You keep your eyes and your heart focused on Him. You keep your mind and heart focused on things above. You store up treasures there. You sing Maranatha till He comes. Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good word.